Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pichkla. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness. This is our podcast and a show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about the personal sides of climate change and other environmental issues. So we are here to create a space for our feelings and our emotions, among other things, our actions and our thoughts. Um, and um, we're into our third season. Actually, yes, we're into our third season. Sometimes I lose count on all these great episodes. And, um, you know, we're, we're into a new part of the year and when we're going to be hearing this episode and Panu and I are talking about some of his work that's close to his heart and, um, uh, particularly around issues of grief and loss and, um, sorrow. And that's what we're talking about today. And you listener can hopefully glean some useful takeaways for yourself. Pandu, tell me a little bit about this uh, project you're working on. It seems to me a culmination of a lot of things you've worked on over the years. Yes, Thomas, that's correct. And always when we are talking about sadness, we are also talking about the potential for joy. So, dear listeners, bear with, with us. The full spectrum of emotions will be present here too, even though the focus will be on loss and grief and especially so-called ecological grief and ecological losses um, but the key idea of this long paper almost a very short book that i've been writing mm -hmm. is to apply theories of grief and bereavement into ecological grief so this links with my earlier history uh, as a theologian where we studied theories of grief and bereavement and then I've done a new deeper reading of that in the light of ecological grief and found out that there are several very useful frameworks and concepts coming out from general grief research that help us to understand forms of ecological grief and loss better. And mm -hmm. uh, Thomas uh, was nice enough to check the draft. So as we are talking, the manuscript is ready. I'm doing some final edits and then it will go into peer review. So, but we haven't talked about in depth about the paper and these ideas yet. So this is mm -hmm. live conversation in, in, in many, yeah. many ways. But, but but Thomas, in, in general, the topic of ecological loss and grief, so how do you resonate with that today? Yeah, I, I want to talk about that, and I'm going to really consciously keep turning the focus back to you today, Pani, so we can really get into your paper, because I'll go off on my own, my own version of your paper. Um, but no, I think this is so important for us, and again, the, the challenge is how do we feel the full range of emotions and be comfortable? And so, you know, this is helping us to be comfortable with a real difficult set of emotions. Um, 
regarding our our connections with nature and the natural world and our feelings about animals and our feelings about the weather and the seasons and the planet. And so we really need to be able to get our heads around this and, and really kind of feel more comfortable and confident addressing these. And then I think it brings all these benefits of our our increased ability to feel capable and copable, as you might say, you know, being able to cope with things and, and paradoxically brings our, helps us if we're not so overwhelmed with these emotions and know how to handle them, we have room for a lot of other other things in our life, in terms, including our actions and our connection, positive connections. So I think it's just, I think it's just really important. And this podcast is just meant, you know, for you, you listeners to hear what Pano and I are talking about in our work, because we're trying to figure all this out based on our somewhat specialized knowledge. So tell me, Pano, the um, uh, kind of a distinction between. Um, you know, sorrow and um, grief and loss. How, how do you differentiate some of these terms? Mm. Yeah, this once again comes back to a major topic in our podcast, which is language, yeah. and especially in relation to emotions. And in the Finnish language, we use only one general word, suru, for both sadness and grief and, and sorrow. Uh, so, of course, that doesn't enable me to use the English concepts in any way I would like, even though that would be nice. Mm. But, of course, it's it's in many ways guiding my thinking about this. So, basically, uh, the existence of sadness is very universal. There are changes happening in the world and if we feel some kind of loss in relation to those changes, then sadness is the emotion which helps us to react to those changes and losses. So I think it's very important to highlight the adaptive and positive character, so to speak, of sadness in this sense. Mm-hmm. It may not always feel feel good, but you know, uh, after it has flown the energy of sadness, which is often depicted by water metaphors. Mm-hmm. When it has flown, then it also, one usually feels better after that. Of course, depending on the loss, this may take sometimes even years be- before the mm-hmm. flow flow is complete again. And something may have been truly lost and world has changed, but still there can be... Uh, also progress in dealing with losses and the related emotions. Mm-hmm. So one big part in this article is to uh, talk about four kinds of loss and four kinds of grief, broadly speaking. Mm. And so this distinction uh, is important because not everybody feels the same things to be losses. And for example, forests are a good ecological example, mm-hmm. B- both in Oregon and Finland. I know that some people feel a loss when an old growth forest is cut down yep. and some people don't. They think that it's just be, be business to do that, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's a simple example of how changes may not feel as losses for all, all people. And also grief is, of course, uh, very varied uh, across individuals. I've heard you say, Thomas, that we grieve in character. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's very important also in relation to ecological grief. Yeah. I mean, I tr- I'm very concrete, so I try to break this down. Um, and I think my way of thinking is fitting in with your paper. But 
just for the listener to be clear, I mean, at least the way I think about it, like um, a loss is, these words all mean many things, but I, I, I think of a loss as something that actually happens, something that um, an event, you know, something is lost, something is taken away. It's an actual event in the world. Uh, the, um, the grief is what we feel. Uh, and then, um, you know, the mourning, I guess you would say, is what we do about it mm-hmm. um, in the sense of how we create a memorial or cope or change change our actions so that the thing won't happen again in the future. So there's there's kind of three levels to the actual events in the world, how we feel about them, and essentially what we do about them. Does that fit in? I know it's not exactly how you look at it, but does that make sense, Hanu? Yeah, it totally totally makes sense, and that's how most people define mourning. Um, once again, that's a concept we don't have an exact equivalent in in Finnish. We use other kinds of yeah. kinds of expressions there. And the first type of loss that I'm discussing in the paper is intangible loss, or mentioning that there can be tangible losses, uh, which are easily discerned. But then there can be intangible losses, which are sometimes called invisible losses, mm. and those require much more to be seen. And for for example, uh, if if you lose a companion animal, that's the tangible aspects that those who know you and your close ones they notice that it's not there anymore. Yeah. But then again, your sense of identity and your relations may be impacted in ways which count as losses. And then those are intangible losses. Mm-hmm. People don't necessarily realize that's happening. And of course, very often this then leads to the first category of grief that I'm here, or type of grief that I'm here naming, which is disenfranchised grief. Mm-hmm. Because if people don't get what you have lost, they may be even involuntarily uh, not sensitive, sensitive about those losses. Mm-hmm. And this has happened very often in relation to companion animal loss, for example. Uh, people haven't realized how deep a loss that can be for, for for other people. And then it's very easy to take it too lightly, for example. Yeah. And this unfortunately happens a lot in relation to ecological loss and grief. So some some other people in the community may not realize how deep the losses are for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, loss of a tree, loss of a tree that um, you know you don't own or don't really have any say over, but it's a tree that you love, either something that you know personally or or the one that you know of in the world. Um, the tree, the loss of the of the tree on on Hadrian's wall last. Uh, this past this past year, um, for some people, was enfranchised where people could come together and grief about grieve about the, the cutting down of that tree, and other people didn't take it, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't take it seriously. Um, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. That's a great example yeah. of disenfranchised grief. Actually, thanks, thanks for sharing mm-hmm. that. And um, in scholarship about ecological grief. It has been observed already years ago that there is disenfranchised grief. Mm-hmm. So what is new in this paper that I'm taking a look at Kenneth Doka's research and other general grief researchers who have made some distinctions about various possibilities inside disenfranchised grief. For example, the loss may not be acknowledged. 
the forest example would be one example of this. But then it may be that the griever is excluded. So, for example, children or old people may be excluded from expressing their grief in public because other adults may think that, you know, they are not in a full position to understand what's going on. And in relation to ecological grief, for example, in the grief of indigenous people for changing uh, ecosystems is one example of how the grievers may be unfortunately excluded. Mm. And then it, it becomes a justice issue very heavily also. That's really interesting. I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but it's not just the feelings that are excluded, but the actual people that are having the feelings are not uh, honored. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and then a third form would be that a relationship or kinship is not recognized. Mm. So when talking about grief in general, researchers have observed that if you are a secret lover or have been a secret lover of a person who has died, the others may not allow you to the funeral they may not even know about you so there may not be a recognition of the relationship or kinship in the community and then i'm a bit discussing this in relation to ideas of kinship between humans and more than humans for example so sometimes there may be disenfranchised grief in ecological grief based on the relationship or kinship not being recognized that's really fascinating too um I'm just jumping in because I'm familiar with a lot of this literature, but of course I knew I learned new things every day as well. And so, yeah, the grievers excluded the the the, um, the kinship. The kinship is excluded. Um, I immediately am flashed to just the challenge in the past of same sex mm. same sex marriages in the U.S. where the where the married couple wasn't recognized under the under the law and led to terrible situations where. A partner couldn't couldn't make decisions or be present for their partner in in, in serious medical situations and things like that. Mm. So I think that's that's um, that's really yeah. The, our kinship is excluded. Yeah, that's helpful. To, that's helpful to. I mean, helpful for listeners to just sort of. And I'm sorry, I have to apologize because I this came up in my my therapy training group yesterday when I was talking about grief, and and people observe. Well, actually, I feel I feel I have more to be grieving about now than I did before. Now that you've raised my <laughs> consciousness about this stuff, it's actually even worse than I thought. Um, but as you say, Pano, you know, it's part of the flow, and once we can get these un. Uh, I, I guess you would say, are we we different? We di- if we don't recognize our own feelings, then they're sort of disenfranchised inside our own self, and so mm-hmm. we we might be feel bad and not know why. So this helps us to uh, ultimately understand how we can cope better. Mm-hmm. That's probably where you go where you go with this, I assume. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. So, and grief researchers mention the possibility that people may self disenfranchise their grief. And then that's linked, of course, to emotion norms in communities and societies. And this is something we have talked about also earlier in this podcast, that uh, industrialized countries are not very good in public and social recognition of grief and engaging with it in, in a communal setting. So there's, there's a lot, lo, lot here. And this is linked with some other forms of loss also. The so-called ambiguous loss is a term 
popularized, especially by Pauline Boss, no, uh, a noted grief researcher who studied, for example, grief about soldiers missing in action. So that's a difficult situation where uh, something is partly lost, but perhaps partly not, or then you cannot know fully uh, if the loss has completely happened. So Boss is making two distinctions. There may be physical absence, but psychological presence, as in the case of the soldier missing in action. Or there may be physical presence, but psychological absence, uh, as with a parent or grandparent who now has dementia or other memory issues. So physically, uh, they are there, but something elementary of their essence is, is gone. And in the article, I'm thinking a bit about these two forms in relation to ecological loss. And this is something that other ecological grief researchers have also noted, that there can be elements of ambiguous loss and climate change is producing these. So we notice that things are not the same in the natural world as they used to be, but then it's very difficult to know, for example, whether some bird species will return or whether some other ecological changes might be reversed. And these elements of ambiguity in the losses often make the grief experience then more difficult and they can also lead to disenfranchisement. Uh, because there is this un- unclarity. But uh, does that resonate with you, Thomas? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, again, I'm tracking this because we, we, we jump from the feelings, which is the grieving and, and how our feelings can be honored or not. Or, you know, enfranchised means to give something uh, honor, to enfranchise something means to give somebody power. Like voting is being enfranchised to be the ability to vote. Um, and then we now we're moved into loss, which is the actual event itself, um, in that absence versus that absence versus presence. I think that's a really subtle but important distinction. Even with missing soldiers in the U.S., there's a you'll still see flags uh, from for POWs and MIAs, uh, prisoners of war or missing in action soldiers from the Vietnam era conflict, because people are holding that um, recognition of those people. So they're essentially enfranchising their grief by flying that flag. So that's that's a concrete example here. And I think for ambiguous loss, what comes up for me is the, is, is the seasons mm-hmm. and how seasons, how seasons are changing. Um, and that's sometimes hard to um, hard to really get your your head around. I saw a term uh, You'd appreciate this, Panu. There's the Bureau of Linguistic Reality, mm. this artists that create new terms. Uh, and they have a term that they talk about called shadow time, which is sort of, there's a time that I'm in, in the present moment, but there's another time scale there uh, outside of me that's shadowing it. So um, I might be enjoying myself, but um, there's a sense of time passing in a dangerous way with climate change. Uh, or that I'm in, I'm in, um, I'm, and they have, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a certain season, mm-hmm. like, and I'm enjoying the fact that my winter is warmer and sunnier than it would typically be. But there's this other time that I know how the season would typically be, and it's shadowing my my current time. So anyway, that's just a, a neat kind of way of of tracking that ambiguity, right? That on that kind of hard to get your head around. Mm-hmm. Should I be sad or not? 
I talked to a person about snow grief yesterday, this um, mm -hmm. filmmaker that I know you've talked to, Pan, who's making a documentary about the loss of snow and how people are dealing with that. And that's, that's a really mixed, uh, mixed situation for people. If you make your living off the snow and the land or, you're, or you really love the winter uh, or it's, it's, it's important for you, then that's difficult. But for other people, oh, this is great that we don't have to, that we can be warmer but it doesn't doesn't sit right either. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Thanks for mentioning all that. And um, I've been visiting that website, the Bureau of Linguistic Reality. But this concept is new to me, so so that gives me a lot of lot of thoughts and fe feelings and connects with many things in the article. Temporalities are complex in relation to ecological grief, and I know Thomas that you have been thinking about this this too. So there may be past losses, there may be ongoing mm -hmm. losses, and then anticipated future losses. Yeah. And in in general grief research, there's several terms and frameworks for this. Anticipatory grief or anticipatory mourning is one key framework. And there's been a lot of discussion between psychologists and grief researchers about should people do that or what are the pros and cons if you do grieving in advance. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a tricky, tricky sub subject. And some people think that ecological grief is mainly anticipatory because the predictions are so dire. Mm. Um, but I think that we need to pay respect both to past losses, ongoing losses, and predicted future losses. And that's why in the article I'm proposing, following Ro Randall, who we had the pleasure to talk with also in the podcast, yeah. uh, that a concept such as transitional loss and grief might be useful at points to name grief related to transitions. So, for example, in southern Finland, in Helsinki, where I'm living, we are transitioning from more regular and more snowy winters to winters which will be increasingly irregular, and the average amount of snow will probably be less. Mm -hmm. So, it's, it's happening. There's an element of anticipation, but it's also happening, and somehow, together, we need to make sense of this transition. Yeah, yeah. There's a term. It's kind of. It's not. It's kind of like defensive pessimism, uh, which is a more general term where people think, "Yeah, it's going to be bad, so I'm going to just assume it's going to be bad, and that's going to help me to um, to get through the situation." And that that is kind of a that is kind of a coping. So just for the listeners, just to be clear, you can. This is kind of complicated, but you can have feelings of grief for something that has not yet gone but you know it is going to go away. And that's a specialized situation, but climate and environmental issues is very much where that happens because we, as humans, are smart enough to know through our observations of the world and through our models and through understanding of past processes what is going to happen. And that's one of the beauties of climate science is that the predictions are very, quite accurate. So we, we, we roughly know what's going to happen and much of it is bad. And it's going to include loss, loss of things like coral reefs or certain kinds of forests or certain kind of species. And so, yes, it is perfectly appropriate to be sad about that and to grieve in advance. Mm. Um, you know, what we do about it and what's meaningful for you, Pano, or me or for the listener is going to be different. Mm. But we do want to we want to honor those those feelings can, in fact, exist. Uh, exactly so, Thomas. I think that's a very important point. And 
as with all emotions, the sort of general aim would be to feel them roughly at the right places, at roughly at the right times, with roughly at the right intensity. So mm -hmm. with anticipation, there is the danger of escaping from it and not, you know, preparing for losses to come. And then there is the danger of doing it overly strongly, you know, that you feel that everything is lost already. And this is actually a major point in those grief counselors literature in relation to uh, no, so-called non-finite loss and anticipatory grief, that naming things that haven't been lost yet so trying to steer away from catastrophization also and this is tricky uh, that's the concept non-finite loss which is also in the article uh, referring to losses which continue and they continue to remind us and that also requires a certain mindset and, and validation but still avoiding total gloominess and catastrophization would be important so it's a question of balance i think yeah so it comes down to wisdom with my feelings again my, my simple feelings you know recommendations you know knowing what you feel what are you feeling what what do you want to what do you want to feel in terms of what feelings do you um to want to grow and cultivate, you know, in terms of the feelings wheel and all the different kinds of feelings that we can have. But also that third question of what, I'm not quite sure always what language to use for it, but it's sort of like, what, what should you feel? Like, what's the right thing for you to feel right now? Sometimes it's right to feel um, sad or grieving because that's the appropriate, that's the appropriate, that's where the growth is. That's where the learning is. That's, that, you know, that's where the wisdom is. It's like a, kind of Aristotle quote about, you know, mm -hmm. feeling the right time and the right amount and things like that. Yeah, no, it's totally fascinating. And so your goal, Panu, with this paper you're doing as with your other work, it seems like you're trying to get your arms around all these concepts and share it with people so they're all in, in one place. Yeah, that's one way to put it. And this empowering, validating dimension is very strongly there because I know that for many people who feel these kinds of things, then... Uh, the possibility to have names for these feelings and have some recognition from other people, that's very important. We need this kinds of social support and there is an ethical dimension to this also. So one thing I'm discussing in the article is intangible losses by young people growing up amidst climate change. So I think it's a potent psychological and ethical task for our communities and societies mm. to recognize how it is and what kind of intangible losses, including shattered dreams, there may be. But this is linked to the transformation inherent in processes of grief also. And a dear colleague of mine, uh, Juni Sinkkonen, who did a study of Finnish young climate activists, found out that the activists felt many kinds of loss and grief, but they also very clearly wanted to frame it so that they are not just experiencing loss and grief, but these changes have brought also more meaning uh, and, and a possibility to be more true to one's values to find new kinds of camaraderie and togetherness and so on. So that's one thing mm -hmm. that's important to emphasize that often there may be transformation and growth inside grief. Yeah. And it's terrible if we silver line it 
but it's also terrible if we don't keep in mind that those possibilities exist also yeah silver line it that's another term <laughs> a new a new term you coined you know to force something to have a silver lining um if maybe that's not the right timing you know you know so yeah you know part of this yeah i know pana you were working with some students um just the other day and i i know that that's this was behind your mind in uh in the working with students mentoring them and that kind of art of honoring people's emotions and not um you know dismissing them by just saying oh it's going to be fine there's a silver lining because that that feels very um people don't feel heard or, or, or respected when you do that kind of thing so um yeah so we're gonna we're gonna move to our closing but this is we'll put some links about some accessible discussions with all this this grief stuff but i hope you're you're getting something out of it it's just a lot of tools for our emotional tool belt and pana do you want to end just a little bit on the two some of the two projects the student work you're doing and also the animal animal rights work a little bit just to give people an example of where you what you do with this in your in your practice yeah Uh, so this feelings may be related to many kinds of things and one of them is uh, non-human animals so there's a research process going on in Finland about uh, what kinds of public speech there is about non-human animals and what kind of emotions and feelings can be related to them so there's a lot of love and care but there may also be feelings of shock and outrage because of the cruel treatment of some animals for example so that's one framework where in the future and partly now i'm applying these kinds of frameworks and concepts and again with the aim of uh, having both psychological and ethical dimensions in in this yeah and i know thomas that you have a have a group meeting starting Mm -hmm. starting very very soon so there's gonna be more sharing and mentoring for you also in the very near future yes i'm gonna jump off this podcast recording and i'm gonna talk to my therapy group here just in a moment so this is really helpful for me pano i really appreciate it it helps me to think through some of these things and i'm gonna directly apply some of this with therapists and that's a way that we both leverage our work is is helping therapists with more tools so they can help many many other people so that's where i think we both get meaning a lot of meaning from this so so thanks a lot Pani. i wish uh, i wish you luck you know with this paper by the time we're talking hopefully it's nicely published and we can share it with people and you and i will talk some more about all of our other projects so you have a good rest of your evening and listeners be well Be well. Thanks, Thomas, once more. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.